There are four types of soil that God talks about when he teaches today. Now, Jesus Christ is teaching, and that's what we read. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hemmer. I'm Janice. And the name of this program is Bible Discovery TV. We are reading the Bible, a book you may not be familiar with, but I encourage you to become familiar with it. I'm going to teach that in about five minutes. In about 20 minutes, Corey's coming with Ryan. Corey, what are you talking about? I'm going to be taking a look at Matthew chapter 15 and some of the purity laws that existed in Jewish culture of the first century. Ryan? Today, my segment is a study of the life of John the Baptist. Very good. Look forward to those segments in about 20 minutes time. Janice, what are you doing? Fun Friday wrap up. It's here once again. Now, anywhere from Zechariah 12 to Matthew 15, I'm going to choose a question from the Bible. So get ready. All right. Get your Bible guide out and turn to today's passage as we study in Matthew. We're going to be focused on what did God teach? Let's listen. Matthew 13, 18 through 30. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places... This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man, who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. Matthew 13, Matthew 14, Matthew 15. Again, we study three chapters that are very interesting 
as we go through the Bible. And I like to say that many times Jesus used parables to explain the truth. What is a parable? A parable is a short allegory story designed to illustrate or to teach some truth, religious principle, or moral lesson. Jesus taught in parables to instruct those who were willing to hear and believe and to conceal the truth from those who would willingly reject it because of the hardness of heart. When Jesus taught the parable of the seed and the sower, he demonstrated how different people would react to the kingdom of God. In the passage today, we see Jesus explaining the meaning of that parable to his disciples. Now, he would reveal to his disciples and to the reader truths that had previously not been revealed or understood. And the Lord did not come to the earth to confuse us, but he came to clarify our life and our choices about him and his kingdom. And that's really important to remember. Jesus didn't come to confuse us. He came to clarify. Think about that. And if that's the case, then we need to really pay attention to his teaching because what he's saying is really important. Now, as we focus on 13, the parable of the farmer and the scattered seed. That's what we talk about. And then we go to Fortern, actually the parable of the wheat and the words and or weeds and the parable of mustard seed and the parable of the yeast and then the parable of the hidden treasures and the parable of the fishing net. This is all parables. And then in 14, the death of John the Baptist. Jesus, one of the greatest miracles ever, feeds the 5,000. Jesus walks on water. What? Absolutely. And then in chapter 15, Jesus teaches about inner purity and the faith of a Gentile woman. Jesus heals many people and Jesus feeds 4,000. First he feeds five, then he feeds four. I mean, that feeding is just absolutely remarkable. Well, as we focus today on this, it's a really interesting passage. Turn your Bible guide to that. If you don't have a Bible guide, why not? Call us or write us. We'll send you one. Go to Bible Discovery TV and click on it. And that will take you to the place where you can download it as we print it on a PDF file. The kingdom of God is what we turn to today. Help us as we pray. Father, I pray today, all of us pray that you would help us. This is your word. We need your word to expand in our hearts. We need our hearts to hear you and to follow you. Help us to do that today. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' wonderful name. And we all said together, make it so or amen. All right. Matthew 13, this begins with verse 18. It says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. Verse 20. But he who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, because of the word, because of the word, keep that in mind, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and cares of this world 
and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word, and he understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This is remarkable, beloved. Four types of soil are used to describe different types of people and how they respond to Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is unique in this world. The kingdom of God is different in this world. And people respond to it in different ways. Now, my, my advice is to try your best to respond to the word of God. And let me tell you what he'll do. He'll respond to you. And beloved, when we accept the word of God, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever it says, then we begin to trust that God begins to change our lives. Very important. Very important. God changes our lives. All right. Now let's go back to the scripture and learn more. Matthew 13, 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheats and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a cop, or crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servant of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in this field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servant said to him, Do you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather them up, the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. That, that's absolutely fascinating, beloved. Listen to this. The kingdom of God is often corrupted by those who attempt evil. And I use the word often for a reason, often corrupted by those who attempt evil. The Lord knows all and is over all. We should know God's word and follow him. There's a lot of people who say a lot of things today about what God says. Have you read the word on that? Have you compared the word to what he says? Everything I say, you compare the word to what I say. Because that's the only way you're going to understand. And that's why we teach the way we do. Because you have a Bible, just like I do. And we can learn together. Very, very important. And that's what we pray. Lord, teach us your way and show us your path. Very interesting. All right. Here's the last part of the scripture, verse 30, verse 30 of chapter 13. Let both grow together, this is the tares and the wheat, until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and not bind them in, bun and bind them in bundles to burn them. And then gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this tells us something else. It is God who will separate the wicked from the righteous on his day of harvest. God will do that. Now, we must pray for everyone to come to Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. So, we pray. Father, I pray for people to come to know you, to hear your word, to do what your word says. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that a a strong group of people will come out of the presentation for the last 31 years of this program, 32 years next year, 33 years the year after, and so on. 
And I pray, Lord, that they would understand the Bible and that people would follow you, give their lives to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, this is what I pray. What do you pray? Pray that your life would demonstrate the Lord by reading the Bible, by understanding it, doing it. Then when you do, people will say, yeah, there's something different about him or something different about her. That's what we're talking about. That's who Christians are. This character of King Saul, this historical figure. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that most of us, when we think of King Saul, we think of the bad guy foil to King David. But an entire book of the Bible is also dedicated to mostly his reign. Of course, that's 1 Samuel. So I'm really excited to jump into it today and see what we can learn about Saul. In Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees have a a bone to pick with Christ, and that is they've noticed that Jesus and his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. So they ask Jesus, why don't you follow the traditions of the elders? Now, they don't say the Mosaic law because it wasn't in the Mosaic law that every covenant Jew had to wash their hands before they ate. However, it was in the covenant law that priests had to ritually wash their hands before their service in the temple. So what appears is happening is they're extending or attempting to extend these purity laws, these holiness laws out into the everyday people. And from the archaeological record and from the scriptures, it does seem like it worked by and large. Take a look. First century Judaism had as a uniting symbol the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The temple centralized the giving of sacrifices and the various annual celebratory festivals of Israel. Though the temple and festivals were important, there was much more to ancient Judaism than this unifying place. Synagogues, scripture, and teachers of the law existed throughout Jewish society, and the faithful practiced their faith in all aspects of their daily life. Community synagogues were an essential aspect of Jewish daily faith, and in the first century BC, the mikvah, or immersion bath for ritual purity, joined the fold. Both public and private mikvah pools are known from archaeology. They're distinctive in their overall design and in where they are built. Namely, wherever there was a Jewish community, mikvah could be found. These baths enabled the faithful to observe the purity laws of bathing found in the Mosaic Law in both a real and convenient way. Beyond mikvah, many researchers suggest that there was an even closer way to express the Jewish faith through dishes made of stone. The popularity of stone-carved dishes increased in the first century BC and lasted until the second century AD. Their popularity largely coincides with the boom of known Jewish mikvah. The idea is that water for personal purification rites like hand washing before prayers and before meals could be kept in stone jars, as is seen in John chapter 2. On top of this, it's known that later Jewish thought believed natural stone to be more resistant to becoming ritually impure than other materials like wood or pottery. Or at the very least, stone vessels and dishes could be purified with water, whereas pottery dishes rendered impure had to be destroyed. 
Pottery was very common and inexpensive, but its destruction was surely still a material loss and an overall inconvenience. Interestingly, the stone used in these dishes was chalk, which seems an unusual choice for dishes because it's a porous and dusty material. It must have had a distinct advantage for Jews in this time period, however, because it is consistently found in Jewish contexts, but almost never outside them. This may be due to the fact that the Mosaic Law does not mention stone vessels at all in its purity laws. Pottery was to be broken, wood washed with water, metal with water or fire, but nothing is said of stone. This scriptural loophole may have fostered the belief that stone cannot be rendered impure. Recently, near Nazareth in the city of Cana, where the Gospel of John records the stone jars of pure water, a chalkstone quarry has been unearthed. Inside the quarried cave, chalkstone vessels were found at different stages of production. So it really does make sense why, you know, the timing would be right for a, a sort of purity culture movement in the first century. You know, the, they, they want the Messiah to come. They want to get out from underneath the Romans. At least a, a lot of the people do. And not everyone. There was, there was factions in there as well. But it's really interesting to see what Jesus does with this challenge. Again, like he always does, he turns it on his head and, and um, turns it into a teaching of what truly defiles a, a human and it's definitely not having dirty hands. Yeah, that's fascinating. It really is. Uh, and, and it's interesting because Jesus Christ always brings things back to the heart. Yeah. Every single time. Uh, and he does that with the law. And uh, anyway, that's, I want to get off on a whole new thing with that. That's I know, actually, lots to talk about. There is. I mean, when you read just a few things in scripture, you th there's a lot of teaching there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would encourage pastors who happen to be watching when you read Jesus Christ, you've got 15 verses here. You've got plenty of sermon material every week. Anyway, okay, I'm done with my <laughs> talking. Anyway, go ahead, Ryan. All right, well, today we read about the tragic death of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14. And though he died young, he had already accomplished what God sent him to do, which was to make the path of the Messiah straight. So my segment today documents the life of this godly man. John the Baptist has been accurately described as an imposing figure in the opening pages of the New Testament, wearing coarse camel's hair and leather, eating locusts and wild honey, shouting at the top of his lungs in a wilderness place to the penitents and curious. John leaps out of the gospel pages as a frightening first figure of a new age. He rants of the coming judgment when the unjust will be destroyed. He demands conversion. He washes those who have begun to change their lives and he is ultimately beheaded by a ruler who would not repent. John the Baptist inaugurates the good news of God's kingdom like a champagne bottle shattered against the hull of a new ship. John's birth had been foretold centuries earlier by the prophet Isaiah, who described him as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and one who would prepare the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It would be the angel Gabriel who would announce the coming fulfillment of this prophecy to John's unsuspecting parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest, and Elizabeth, a relative of Jesus' mother Mary, was of the daughters of Aaron, and the boy would be a miracle child, since Elizabeth was barren, and both she and her husband were elderly. Gabriel also revealed to them that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, while still in the womb, 
and that he would go before the promised Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. John was to be extremely unique. In fact, as one author quips, if God wanted to draw a crowd before introducing his son to the world, John the Baptist was a great choice. Crowd appeal was guaranteed, given John's creative blend of qualities. Indeed, although most sons would follow in their father's footsteps to the priesthood, John became a monk-like prophet, who fully embraced the wilderness life. He also began baptizing people in the Jordan River, earning him the moniker John the Baptizer. He apparently adapted the idea from the Jewish practice of taking a ritual bath to purify oneself for worship. On one occasion, as John was preaching and baptizing, he saw Jesus coming towards him and exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Though John perhaps had suspected all along that his own relative was the Messiah, he now knew for certain. Any further doubt was removed when the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus after his baptism. Though Jesus' path had now been made straight, John continued on with his ministry. However, when he later confronted King Herod about his incestuous relationship with his brother's wife Herodias, Herod threw him into prison. Soon after this, Herodias conspired to have John executed and for his head to be brought out on a silver platter for display. Though John died before his 40th birthday, his mission had been accomplished. So in closing up this segment, I want to summarize by quoting what Christian author Stephen Miller says about John because I like what he says. He writes, Jews were expecting a Messiah, a hero, to lead Israel back to God and back to international glory, like King David did a thousand years earlier. But before the Messiah came, they expected a prophet to prepare the way. And John saw himself as that man, and he was that man. And if God wanted to draw a crowd before introducing his son to the world, John the Baptist was a great choice. Crowd appeal was guaranteed, given John's creative blend of qualities. Yeah, it, and that's a really important statement, his creative blend of qualities. I mean, he, he was from a priestly home, yet he didn't look like the priest. Uh, I mean, he dressed in camel skins and, you know, everything Just like else. a prophet. And, yeah. I mean, like well, he's considered one of the last, the last Old Testament prophet, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. I mean, he's, you know, camel and, hair and everything. I mean, there's a lot about him. He was filled with the spirit when he was in his mother's belly. I mean, it was just incredible. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just, it seems like it's too bad his head was cut off before he went further. But uh, keep in mind that the king had uh, said that he heard shadows in his dreams of John the Baptist still preaching. Yeah, and well, yeah, I think it's I think it speaks wonders that people were still afraid of him terrifying. when after he had, was already dead and gone. That's true, very yeah. true. And you know, and you said you're looking forward to meeting him. Yes. So am I. And and it just I'm telling you there's so many people in heaven waiting for us and and uh, we want to encourage you to get to heaven. We do. <laughs> we want to encourage you to accept Jesus Christ in your heart and and really get to heaven because that's important. And you accept him by saying, Lord, come into my heart. I need you today. Help me today. I give my life to you and I need you in Jesus name. And he will show you everything and teach you everything and be serious about that. Corey, quickly, 
Tell us about Saul. Yes, okay, so I did a six-part Bible study called Understanding Saul, a journey through 1 Samuel. So I, I, I made this for Bible study groups ideally, but you can do it as an individual as well. Uh, but it, it, uh, we take you through 1 Samuel, we talk about why in the world God would have ordained this man as the first king of Israel. He seems a very unlikely choice, especially with how he ended up, but it turns out He's, it, it makes a lot of sense when you study it. So uh, if you would like to get a hold of this, call to call us, write to us, go online. It's available as a physical copy or as a digital download for a suggested donation of $60 to the ministry just to keep us strong. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I want to encourage you to get a hold of yours uh, because it's really a good, good Bible study. Okay, now mm -hmm. we've got two minutes left. This Lots is the question. Lots of time. Lots of time. <laughs> you guys ready for this question? Uh, we're about to find out. We're going <laughs> to see. We're going to see. You never know. Are That's you right. ready for this question? That's the question. I think I'm they asking. are. I think they are. Look at me. I'm kind of rolling up my sleeves. <laughs> anyway, let's wow. see here. I could ask anywhere from Zechariah chapter 12 all the way up to Matthew 15. And oh my goodness, there's so many little tidbits in there that I could it's a have lot of grasped information. onto. But. Here's what I decided to ask today. Who were the sons of Zebedee? Who were the sons of Zebedee? Was that, I see hand actions behind me. There's shadows dancing. All right. So who were the sons of Zebedee? James and John, Peter and Andrew, or Thomas and Matthew? Those are your choices. I'm just saying that they, I'm sure they know this, mm -hmm. okay? And hopefully they know that. And Greg knows them. I think many, down in North many, many of them do. And many do not. And that's okay because today, if you don't know the answer, you're going to learn what the right answer is. You got Hurrah. 50 seconds. All right, What's so who were the sons of Zebedee? Was it James and John, Peter and Andrew, or Thomas and Matthew? We're pretty confident We're on confident, this. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. We're going to go with option A. Yes. Option A. Sons of Thunder. James yeah. and John. Very good. You get the bonus. Yes. They're also called the <laughs> Sons of Thunder. I it's almost couldn't get that out. That. There you go. And let's check let's check out this answer. Question. Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. Going on from there, he, meaning Jesus, saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, he called them. And so the first brothers that he did call were Peter and Andrew. They, in fact, were brothers. Then James and John and Thomas and Matthew were disciples, but not brothers. As we conclude the program, I would like to remind you Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 3.30 Eastern Standard Time in America that uh, you would join us on YouTube, Facebook, or Bible Discovery TV. We are live with a prayer meeting. 
pray for your needs and the needs of the world as we go through many things. Today, let's close in prayer this way. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, that they would invite you into their lives and make you the Lord. 